Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Dr. Ellie Woodacre. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Today, however, we're not reviewing a consort, but rather interviewing an historian, though very much still on the subject of consorts, as we're speaking to Dr Ellie Woodacre, who is uh, an expert in royal and particularly queenship studies, but most relevant for, uh, relevant for us, is also an expert on Joan of Navarre, who we uh, reviewed a few episodes ago. Brilliant. Um, I need a bit of a uh, refresher. Yes, well, I think we'll be getting uh, a refresher. So we're going to chat to Ellie about Joan of Navarre, find out a little bit more about her, or in Ali's case, finding about her all over again. <laughs> uh, seeing whether we missed anything in our review and also the subject of queenship in general. I better have a, um, better have a quick um, listen to that episode before getting going. Okay, we're going to listen to that episode and then we're going to speak to Dr Ellie Woodacre. So we're very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the historian Dr Ellie Woodacre. Uh, Ellie, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners in terms of uh, sort of who you are, what you do, etc.? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a reader in Renaissance history at the University of Winchester. Um, but my my bag, if you like, or my portfolio, I'm really all about queens and queenships. So um, my area of interest kind of ranges the whole gamut. My recent book, Queens and Queenship, looks at queenship in a kind of global, timeless, kind of long durée kind of sense. Um, but I've also published on the pregnant queens of Navarre. So obviously relatives of Joan, who we'll be hearing more about recently, and on various aspects of queenship, the history of monarchy, etc. Cool. Yeah, so um, we'll talk um, about sort of the wider queenship um, work that you do later, but the main focus for us today is to talk about uh, Joan of Navarre, queen consort to uh, Henry IV. Now, we actually reviewed Joan uh, a few weeks ago, but for anyone who either hasn't listened to that episode yet or people like Ali who might need their memories being jogged a little bit, um, could you give us a, a brief overview of who Joan of Navarre was? Yeah, yeah. So Joan of Navarre is, is one of our least known queens of England. Um, but what's really interesting about her, well, there's lots of things that are really interesting about her, um, but she has this really interesting kind of migration in her life. So she starts out as an infanta, if you like, of Navarre, which is a small, um, at that point, uh, autonomous, independent kind of kingdom, which is nestled in the Pyrenees. If you know Pamplona, the running of the bulls, you'll know where Navarre is. Um, it was annexed by Castile in 1516, but in Joan's period, it was still an independent kingdom. Um, she then becomes Duchess of Brittany in her first marriage and then marries Henry IV as a widow in her second marriage, which is quite unusual and distinctive. Mm. But she has a very long period as a dowager queen of England, very kind of long and actually quite eventful period. There's an impression that a lot of people have that when queens become dowagers, they kind of retire and are packed off to a convent or their, their kind of dower lands, etc. And, and uh, mm. Jones, my chapter on Jones being a dowager is anything but a quiet retirement basically so there's yeah. a very very long uh, and interesting life there's a lot going on with Joan of Navarre and yet um, at the point of speaking there isn't a published um, book about her which is a situation which you are remedying because you are literally have written a book on Joan of Navarre <laughs> yes I have yes it'll be out um, kind of summer 2022 so in a couple of months so yeah absolutely Joan is one of those people who is forever a footnote or a mention in lots of other people's biographies and she gets covered in a kind of Queens of England sense and kind of mm. Agnes Strickland or more recently say Lisa Hilton when you're looking at yeah. all the queens and you have to mention them all um, but in terms of a dedicated book just on her life um, this is to my knowledge going to be the first so I'm quite happy to fill that gap and kind of you know, evangelize for her life <laughs> why is that do you think is this a question you've got coming up Graham but I just find it so no. odd that uh we have people like this in you know married to a king of England and no one thought it uh, interesting enough to have a go at a book 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, when I first started on this project about uh, 10 years ago, some of my colleagues said to me, well, what are you going to write about her? Because there there really isn't anything to say. Because if you look at the Chronicles, I mean, she she does get like a bare mention, a sentence here, a sentence there. She marries the king. She has a coronation. You know, the king dies, etc. She's now a widow. There's almost nothing in those sources about her. And I think that's why she's been missed. That and the fact that she's not Henry V's mother. So there mm-hmm. is a tendency with queens who aren't the mothers of kings um, to be kind of, you know, sidelined, if you like. And, and conversely, there are some king's mothers. Look at Margaret Beaufort, who is never queen, but, you know, everyone knows who Margaret Beaufort is, right? Mm-hmm. So it, maternity has a lot to do with it. She's actually much better known in some ways in Breton history because she is incredibly important to the uh, kind of longevity of the Montfort dynasty. Oh, so is there any French publications on her? There are not not entire books. Again, there are um, you know articles and chapters and bits and pieces on her life. And, and certainly if you look at the amount of time she's given in Breton historiography versus how much she's mentioned in kind of English historiography and histories of the period, she's actually, again, given much more prominence in, in, in Breton histories because she is quite a significant figure as the mother of this important generation of, of Montfort, not just her son, Jean V, but her very famous son, Arthur de Richemont, who was this great figure in the Hundred Years' War and then later became Duke as well. Um, so she's this really important linchpin in dynastic history. She's regent. And then, of course, her role as Queen of England is important in Breton history as well. So, yeah, she's given a lot more attention. Um, it, it's all a matter of perspective, right? To the English, she seems like, oh, well, she's just the, the wife of Henry IV, who's not a very exciting king, which is untrue, but that's <laughs> sometimes the impression you get. Um, I do blame Shakespeare in a way, in that if you know the the, you know, the Henry the Fourth plays and Henry the Fifth. Joan is totally missing, and again, a lot of people's knowledge of Henry the Fourth and Fifth mm. is connected to those very famous Shakespeare plays. In fact, they were literally just um, showing uh, one of those productions of Henry the Fourth Part One um, on on the BBC um, last night. So again, oh, yeah. if, if that's your impression of Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, and Joan is a wall, then it does lead to this impression that you know she wasn't very interesting, not very significant, not very important. So yeah. I'm hoping oh, to correct God. that. <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare, honestly, he's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> Amen. Just, just decided what everyone was going to know for the next 400 years. And now we're like, hang, hang. finally, someone's questioning this guy. <laughs> I mean, goodness me. In popular culture and history and memory, she's been kind of excised. Again, it's led to this impression that she's not very interesting. Jane Austen famously said when she wrote her kind of history of England that it's to be supposed that Henry IV had a wife, but I couldn't tell you who she was. And again, that's the kind of, unfortunately the kind of impression that Joan's given. Wow. So was it, um, in writing the book about her, was it difficult to get um, enough sort of information, evidence to, to make a, a full work or actually is there quite a rich amount of source material and historians just haven't bothered to actually bring it all together before there is a really really rich corpus of material i've been literally drowning in it for the last 10 years so when you when you move beyond the chronicles and particularly the english chronicles and you start digging in particularly the financial records because with joan it's all about money and the kind of connection between money and power and you look at again some of the french sources the breton sources the navarese sources etc you get um a much more well-rounded picture of her um and so that's that's what i've really tried to do in in my work is to to really kind of draw on all of these different perspectives of Joan and to bring it together with what's happening in England and the Hundred Years War and kind of her family dynastic history to kind of try and flesh Joan out. So yes, there's loads of material, but it's just looking in different places. And that's what you have to do sometimes with Queens is you have to, yeah, you have to be a bit of a detective and and sometimes Mm. read between the lines to find them. Yeah, I think we've certainly found that perspective, or I have, that from doing our first series on the Kings, that was great. And we, you know, that's the you know we we find out uh alternative views but on a known story and then with these uh with the the consorts it really really helps tell the story of the kings as well because it's the same story from a totally different perspective and it helps flesh out the whole thing so i can imagine if you're studying this person to see uh, you know for how they're viewed from other other nations would be fascinating 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, th- I think it does. I mean, monarchy is a tale of two halves, right? You need yeah. the male and the female mm-hmm. component. And so if you're telling the story of a king without the queen, you're missing part of the story. And, and conversely, mm-hmm. it's impossible for me to talk about Joan without talking about the issues of, of Henry IV and V and, and even what's going on in the reign of Henry VI, even though she's more removed from court at that period, it's still very mm-hmm. impactful. So yeah, you need the whole, the whole gamut, the whole kit and caboodle to really understand what's going on. Mm. Now, without wanting to get ridiculously basic to the point it seems like we haven't done an episode on her something i wanted to ask you about that i forgot to mention in my email was uh, her name and in fact all aspects of it but particularly the first bit because sometimes i see it written as joan sometimes as joanne sometimes joanna so what like what will be on the front of your book and what are there is it about different languages or cultures and how they use that name or it's a language no 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 this is a really good question it's a language thing um so what's really difficult and it was challenging for me as well when i was working on the regnant queens of navarre to kind of decide was i going to go with the spanish version was i going to go with the french version etc i have stuck with joan of navarre just because that is how she's most often referenced and particularly in kind of an anglophone kind of you know venue if you like i think it works best but Obviously, you know, you could call her Juana de Navarra, you could call her Jeanne de Navarre. And again, again, if you're talking to the Breton, you'd have to call her Jeanne de Navarre, otherwise they wouldn't know who you were talking about. But one of the big issues with her name is that, and one of the reasons why I've also stuck with Joan is that everybody in her family is a Jeanne or Juana. (laughs) It is the name, so she's got, you know, so there's Jeannes and Juanas, you know, all over the place. Um, So I've stuck with Joan and I've, I've deliberately gone with Joan instead of, Joanna or um, Joanne, um, just because I I think it's more appropriate. But when you look at Joan's signature, and actually one of the fun things Mm -hmm. about Joan is um, some people have claimed, and and it's difficult to completely verify this, but her signature is the first surviving signature of a queen of England that we have. And let me tell you, Joan liked to sign everything she could. So we have lots of great examples of her signature, but she signs herself Jehan, so, you know, J-E, H-A-N-N-E. So that's how mm. she signed and wrote her name. But if I put that on the cover, people say, who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're <laughs> so, fighting an uphill battle with her already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I, I completely understand it. And of course, when you Google her, you kind of have to Google all the variants to find all the bits and pieces on her. Mm, yeah. Um, and then the second bit is uh, of Navarre, which um, again, is kind of an interesting thing because having read about her sort of what there is on her early years and I guess and particularly sort of what her father's doing it almost feels like she's more a French princess than a Navarrese princess so sort of what is Joan's world in her sort of early childhood years yeah no that's a really good question um so obviously you're absolutely right in that she is the daughter of the king of Navarre but her family is effectively the ruling family of France. So going back to her grandmother, um, Juana Segunda, or, or you know, Joan the Second, Jean the Second, etc. But she was kind of the test case for female succession in the Capetian succession crisis. And um, so by 1328, when it was kind of decided to exclude all of the women and all of the female line. She became still Queen of Navarre in her own right, you know, because her, her father had been. But she did not obviously become Queen of France, but she was a Capetian, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was she was part of that that dynasty. And Joan's father, um, Carlos El Malo or Charles the Bad, if you like, never forgot that he, in his mind, had a better claim to the throne of France than the Valois cousins. And the Valois, the, the ones who uh, were able to ultimately claim the crown, they were the kind of branch of the Capetians. That, that it eventually was settled on in 1328. So a lot of Charles uh, or Carlos's um, bad behavior in the Hundred Years' War were really kind of part and parcel of his own ambition for that French crown that he believed was rightly his. So Joan was not only a Capetian through her grandmother and her father, but her mother was Jeanne de Valois, who was the daughter of Jean Le Bon, or John the Good, if you like, King of France. Um, so yes, yeah, so Joan was a, you know, kind of a French princess, if you like, on, on both sides of the coin, effectively. She's related by blood to really kind of half the dynasties in Western Europe, which gives her a lot of street cred, even if Navarre itself is a small kingdom territorially. But it's interesting with that, it's like the Hundred Years' War, and obviously when we did Isabella of France and that claim, and sometimes, I guess maybe because we know the outcome, it seems like the English are pushing it a bit by saying that 
you know, we've got this claim to the Kingdom of France. But actually, if, you know, Charles of Navarre is doing it as well, is it that actually it's a bit unusual that France just rejects female line or female succession? Is actually it's France trying to stop other people claiming the throne rather than the other countries sort of chancing their luck? No, absolutely. I mean, obviously, this is probably a conversation for another time because I can wax enthusiastic <laughs> about the salad <laughs> um, But effectively, what happens is that um, that it, the throne ends up going from brother to brother, but each of these brothers only have female issue. And so by the time you get to 1328, you've got about 10 different princesses who all are the daughters of kings. And at that point, France didn't have a clear-cut law saying that females could not inherit but when you've got that many women with a claim, which one do you pick? And you know who who do you prioritize? And, and by that time, a lot of them are married to very important French nobles, and they all would love to see their wife become the Queen of France. So it becomes really complicated. But Isabella of France and her son, Edward III of England, is the real issue that in some ways her claim is even better because she is a generation closer to Philip the fourth, if you like, she is, you know, if, if the throne has gone from all of her brothers and she's run out of brothers in a way she should be next. And therefore, you know, Edward the third should be. So the way to kind of make life really simple is say, right, no women and no female line. And so that cuts out the Navarrese and that cuts out the English and that, that you know, cuts out the Burgundians and all these, you know, kind of makes things a little bit simpler. Um, and it's only literally 30 years after this whole thing in 1328, when they decide to give it to the Valois, that Salic law is kind of fished out retroactively to justify what they've done. Because at that point, we're in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. Edward III is pushing, in a way, quite rightly, his claim to the French throne. Mm. So, yeah, it was a real complicated mess, to be honest. It's just so frustrating, isn't it? When, when you see people <laughs> in history trying so hard to get it absolutely in law, right? No, no women, thank you. We're all okay for women. And then there'll be some sort of tyrannical king come along who only has girls and will say, what? no, no, definitely this girl. This girl is fine. <laughs> and then trying so hard to unpick it. And we've, we found that with the Scots, that if there was just a system that they could, they could all work together, it'd be so much more straightforward. So frustrating. No, absolutely. I mean, the thing is today, right, if you want to look at kind of the line of succession today, you can go on the royal website mm. and it shows you down to like the, you know, 34th in line or something ridiculous, right? So today there are very clear cut precedent and law about succession and how it works and who's in line. But it's important to remember in the Middle Ages, it was still more pragmatic and those rules were still being developed and the customs weren't totally firm and precedents weren't totally established. And so there was more kind of flexibility, but that's when things get, like you said, loosey goosey and yeah. someone goes, well, hang on a minute, let's do it this way instead. Yeah. <laughs> you can throw oh. a little kind of monkey wrench in it. Yeah. So with all of these sort of complications and disputes going on, where, where does Joan's uh, first marriage and becoming the Duchess of Brittany fit into all of this? Yeah, okay. So so that's that's really significant. So obviously the marriages of of you know royal women is often kind of a huge part of politics and diplomacy. And so Joan's first marriage is no different. Her second marriage isn't. And so we'll get to that eventually, but her first marriage is very much about kind of her father's political necessities, if you like. So Brittany and Navarre are both in kind of a situation of being or having been kind of generally pro-English, but having to kind of step back from that because of pressure from the French to not support the English. But they both have kind of pro-English sympathies. They both have this kind of situation with France where they owe some homage to the King of France, but are also kind of sovereign rulers themselves. And that's a really uncomfortable position to be in, if you like, that you're trying to kind of assort your own independence and authority. And yet you still have the King of France saying, well, you owe me homage and I want some control over you. Mm. Um, so they're kind of sympathetic, if you like, in that way. And so um, a connection between them is desirable for both of their sakes. Um, so that's kind of where Joan comes in. But Jean IV um, is in this situation where he's been married twice before to English princesses, actually, both of them. Mm -hmm. So Mary of England and then Joan, um, Joan Holland. Um, so 
he's been married twice, but he's had no children. And Jean IV had spent most of his reign fighting off his cousins, the Pontiev, who also have a claim to the Breton throne. There was this big civil war effectively in Brittany. But for him or his family or his branch of the family to remain on the throne, he has to have surviving male issue or it goes back to his cousins. And all of that work, all of that fighting um, is effectively undone. So he is desperate for um, someone young and nubile and so actually one of the things he requests is that he wants a bride under the age of 16 who is in good health, because that's that's kind of what she's there to, to do. And, and actually, Joan, to be fair, ticks that box admirably. Um, she has nine children, not all of them survive, um, but she's definitely um, ticks a big box on the maternity score. And her her marriage to Jean IV is quite successful, I think partially because she, she really fills the brief. We give uh, points for dynasty, but... Come on, nine children. What was it? It was over 10 years or something horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, she she is effectively, yeah, pregnant most of the time that she's Duchess of Brittany. It's like ordering a horse online. Young, nubile, under 16. It's just so, <laughs> there's no element of love there at all. It's not dressed up. It's just that uh, this is function. Well, royal marriages, unfortunately, I mean, that is a lot of what's going on there. I mean, it is about politics and dynasty. And I mean, you know, one hopes that when said mail order bride arrives, that there is a personal bond. And actually, to be fair, Jean IV and Joan seem to have a very good working relationship. He trusts her. He makes a regent when he dies. Um, he, you know, she's rewarded with a, an ample dower. They have these kind of exchange of their of their goods, effectively, where they kind of reinforce their connection to one another. Um, he seems to listen to her when she wants to intercede politically so i you know i think i think the relationship is a good one so it grows into that definitely but you're right in terms of you know when when he first kind of arranged the marriage she herself as an individual was hardly important he was looking for a broodmare Mm-mm. so did that restrict joan or does the fact that she become regent suggest that she was actually well respected and trusted and had quite an important role to play as duchess beyond just as a mother Yes, no, she definitely was engaged. And one of the things, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that we can see her doing is acting as an intermediary with her family, which is part, again, part of the reason why she's there. I mean, Jean IV does need, you know, someone to bear his children, but he values her connection. So she is first cousin to the King of France and the great kind of princes of the blood, Dukes of Burgundy, Berry, Bourbon, etc., are her uncles and close relatives, you know, so she is incredibly well connected and she plays an important role vis-a-vis her family and also her her brother who becomes Carlos III of Navarre um, in terms of keeping up those political connections, hosting them. And also there's this really important occasion, for example, when her uncle, the Duke of Berry, comes from the French king, her cousin, uh, at a time in which um, Brittany and France were not getting on well. And the Duke of, of Berry basically comes with an ultimatum with Jean IV doesn't receive well. He kind of flies off the handle and is kind of threatening to kind of go to war with France and make this big um, diplomatic kind of mess, if you like. And Joan, apparently, now again, we have to take this with a pinch of salt because the chroniclers tend to be a bit dramatic with that. But apparently she goes heavily pregnant, full of tears with her children in her arms and kind of says to Jean, don't do this. This is going to be a huge mess. It will destroy Brittany. Think of our children, etc. Now, we have to kind of take some of the drama out of the equation. But fundamentally, I mean, she's She's making a very good political point there and he listens to her and he backs down and he does negotiate with the king of France. And, and she's absolutely right. She's saying, what are you doing, you idiot? You know, we, don't, we don't want to go to war with France. You know, think again, you know, listen to my uncle. You know, he's got something to say here. So, um, so yeah, so like I said, when we take the drama out of the equation, we can kind of see her as a political operator and she's very engaged in the dynastic politics, which again is part of what she's there to do. So then when her husband dies, is that she becomes a regent for her son. So is that normal practice that the mother becomes regent or is that unusual that tells us something about how Joan was respected within Brittany? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it is and it isn't unusual in that in France, there is a an established kind of tradition of 
motherly regency, I guess you could say, kind of minority regency. So again, if you think about some of the Capetian queens, the great example, of course, is Blanche of Navarre and Saint Louis. Again, you know, her very capable regency in the early years um, of Louis IX's reign um, is, is still, you know, incredibly well respected and discussed in terms of her kind of astute rulership. Um, so there is in France this, this tradition of regency. In England, of course, there isn't. That's not established. For example, mm. Isabella d'Angoulême when King John dies, I mean, no one even thinks about making her region or even that possibility. And so we see multiple kind of women being passed over effectively in England in that same kind of position. The fact that Jean IV nominates Joan and asks her, you know, to, to take on that role shows that he does have implicit trust in her that he does know that she will, that she's you know, got the political savvy to, to undertake the role and that she's got the experience to make it work. And, and she is a very effective regent. In fact, you know, the fact that she decides to, to leave and, and remarry and give up the regency is actually in some ways more surprising than her becoming regent in the first place, given the French context. And presumably she must have been respected by the subjects or the other nobles as well, because it's one thing for the, the monarch or the duke in this case to say, you will be my regent when I die. But once he's dead, presumably all bets are off. And if a powerful lord decided, well, no, I'm not having that in our soup with an army, that could have happened. But the fact that it doesn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that she does, which is really clever, is um, she knows that when you know her husband dies, that there is still the threat of that other branch of the family, the Pontiev, who are always the kind of bogeyman, if you like, um, kind of lurking. Um, so she does a lot to reinforce her son's claim. So not only by kind of reinforcing Jean IV's position as the rightful Duke of Brittany and kind of memorial services and eulogies for him, but also in terms of using ceremonial to reinforce Jean V's position. So she kind of does this quasi-regal, really, really kind of intensive coronation ceremony to kind of enshrine her son, reinforce his power and position. She also gets all of the important nobles of Brittany on side right away. So she gets um, gets Olivier de Clisson, who is an incredibly powerful lord, not only in Brittany, but in France, but who has been Jean IV's kind of uh, you know, terrible enemy, if you like, throughout most of his most of their lives. She gets him on side right away. She already has a tie to the Vicomte de Rohan, who is another kind of big Breton noble who she's related to because her aunt is married into the Rohan family. So she gets the powerful nobles kind of on side right away has a bit of a dispute with the Bishop of Compere. So she has some, some issues with the church, but she manages to, to resolve that as well. So she right away knows what she has to do to reinforce her son's position and to get the nobility on side and behind her. She gets all these oaths of homage, for example, to herself and her son. So yes, she, she does realize that whenever you have um, a minority rule, it's always a bit shaky as um, that kind of woe to the realm when a child is king kind of scenario. So she does everything that she can to reinforce enforce her own position and that of her son. The, the surprise then perhaps is the fact that she decides to give up the regency So, because it seems like she's quite well set there then because she's regent, she's doing a good job, people seem to respect her. So why does she then marry King Henry IV of England, particularly given that they both have quite a number of children, they both have sons, neither of them actually need to remarry. So is it for love or is it always politics when kings are involved? Well, this is the eternal question. It is a really surprising marriage. And certainly they, they, the, the whole kind of courtship, if you like, is done you know, under the table, secretly, envoys going back and forth, very much hush-hush, in total contrast to the negotiations for her first marriage, which had been this massive kind of diplomatic envoys being sent and you know, all, the, all the paperwork that, that ensues with that and ceremonial, etc. So here, it's completely the opposite. And it's clearly Henry and Joan... Are making this happen and they you know considering the reaction that happens after it's known that they're married certainly the french court explodes the last thing they want is for the regent of Brittany to become um the queen of, of england um that's probably part of the reason why they did that under the table but clearly she's making a play for herself at this point i mean she had been married to the duke of Brittany for her father's political strategies you could say that obviously her second marriage 
is still incredibly beneficial to Navarre. So, but it's not being negotiated by Carlos III, her brother, with Henry IV. She's negotiating it, and again, in this very secret way. So the big debate has always been, why Joan? Yeah, why Joan? She doesn't bring any money. Um, you know, obviously, considering that it does create a firestorm with France, it's not as <laughs> helping from that perspective um, politically. Um, you know, what's going on there? And of course, the, the question is always, you know, it's kind of come around to, is it is it a love match? Is it a love? We know that they met um, earlier in their lives. They did know each other. They met on, on at least a couple of occasions. The question is whether they formed some kind of bond or attachment. And when Joan was free, Henry IV said, right, you know, this is great. You know, I'm a, I'm a widower, you're a widow, you know, let's get married. Um, but um, the other thing I think as well that we sometimes discount is that Henry IV was a usurper king. He was in a very shaky position. He had taken the throne from his cousin, Richard II. Many people refused to acknowledge him as king. Um, he needed some cred. And as we talked about before, Joan is related to the monarchy of like half of Western Europe. She's related to Holy Roman emperors, the kings of France, the Iberian kings, etc. She has indubitable royal cred. Even if she is Duchess of Brittany, she is completely royal on all sides of the equation. And so she gives Henry... She enhances his kind of royal standing, if you like. So I think there is that to consider as well. So I don't think it was a purely political move. If it was, it wasn't a very good political move. He certainly didn't gain any control over Brittany through marrying the regent. If that was what he intended to do, that was not a good idea. It didn't help his relationship with France at all. It did help his relationship with Navarre, but that, that he was already kind of in, in good stead with Navarre. So I don't think it was necessarily politics. Was it personal? Perhaps wasn't about his kind of um, position as, as a king, perhaps. So we'll never know completely. Um, but there may well have been a personal dynamic to it. I, I remember we fell heavily on the personal dynamic side. It makes this <laughs> such a lovely story, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we want it to be true. And there's lots of yeah. kind of, you know, romantic stories about, um, you know, the, this idea that he gave her forget-me-nots because he didn't want her, you know, him to forget oh. her and things like that. <laughs> you know, is any of that true? You know, we just don't know. But what we do know is they did have a very good marriage. There is no insinuation throughout their marriage that he was unfaithful to her. He was very uxorious, very supportive of her. Clearly, they had a very good marriage. So does that mean that they were in love in the first place? Possibly. Um, but again, it's so hard to know. This is where you kind of wish you had a smoking gun of like love letters or you know something like, you know, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn's kind of, you know, correspondence during their courtship. Unfortunately, we don't have that. So we'll have to guess. What we can say is it shows a great deal of agency on her part that unlike, you know, a lot of royal women who, you know, are deployed and then redeployed, if you like, by their relatives, this is Joan's opportunity to say, actually, I'm going to make a conscious decision what I do next. I don't want to rusticate as the duchess mother or the dowager duchess, if you like, once my son comes of age. I'm going to carve a new role out for myself. And some some Breton historians have kind of said she was uber ambitious, that she wanted the crown and that she saw this opportunity and took it with both hands. Possibly, possibly. It was kind of a, an upgrade, I guess you could say, in terms of title. And so that that may have been the case. But um, but yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of factors at work there, definitely. And the other thing we wonder in terms of whether suggesting uh, an affection from Henry the Fourth part is that she gets uh, an incredibly sort of generous financial settlement from Henry, even though she seems to be pretty well off uh, from what she's got in Brittany and the fact that Henry and the government aren't very well off and can't really afford to be so so generous. So was there would there have been another reason for Henry to have done that if it wasn't just that he sort of wants to impress his, his new wife? Well, there's a lot going on there. You're absolutely right in that one of the strange things about Joan is she doesn't bring a dowry with her. So she's not bringing money or land with her, but she does keep her dower, if you like, her dower lands in Brittany, which are quite significant, including the Comte de Nantes, which is like around the kind of important ducal city where she was based. Um, so, yeah, so she comes over. She's already kind of got financial support from that. And the fact that she's able to retain that dower once she becomes Queen of England is already... Um, controversial, if you like, and that normally your dower is meant to provide for you in your widowhood. And considering that she was remarrying, in theory, she didn't need that anymore, but she did keep it throughout the entirety of her life. And she fought tooth and nail to keep it as well. 
But you're right, Henry does grant her this kind of 10,000 marks a year, which is very generous. Now, there's a couple of things going on there. One is, it is more than earlier queens were granted, some earlier queens were granted, but it was technically what Isabella de Valois, who was the last kind of queen, even though she wasn't properly queen, if you like the second wife of Richard II, was granted in her kind of um, marital negotiations. Now, she never had that because she was a child queen and she never kind of fully came into her dower. Um, but, you know, it, it set a precedent, if you like. So Henry didn't mm. want to be seen to be doing less than what, the, you know, the previous king had done. And this is part of his kingly cred, if you like, as well. Henry was always generous to a fault, and he did like to splash the cash. Um, but part of that was, was again, proving his, his authority, his majesty. Um, his biographer, Chris Given Wilson, kind of says that you can't be a cheapskate as a usurper king, that you've got to kind of splash the cash and act the kingly part. So that's part of it. There may have been the you know affection that he wanted to kind of be good to her, quote unquote. But he ends up promising her something that he can't make good on. So she does spend a great deal of her time as queen fighting tooth and nail to kind of get what's hers. One of the things, if we can kind of know anything about Joan's personality that I would say is she is a fighter and she was no wallflower. She did not, if, if she, she always stood up for her rights and revenues. She sued everyone. She fought with everyone. If you had something that she felt was hers, she was going to let you know about it. And she was really feisty. I mean, she sends letters to Henry at one point because she's not getting the queen's gold saying, you need to sort out the exchequer. Why am I not getting the queen's gold? This is something that all queens are due. Why am I not getting it? He does sort it out after she 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 kind of writes that feisty letter. She petitions Parliament again and again. Um, like I said, she sues people left, right, and center. She gets involved in all sorts of disputes. Um, yeah, she's not a woman to cross, Joan. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. That's good. I know because I don't really remember reading much about that, other than the fact that she sort of has like her own office where she's sort of managing all of the states and stuff. But I didn't otherwise get so much of all of that conflict and her really forcing the issue even with Henry so yeah I think we might have given her a bit more of a, a battleness score if we'd had more of that detail well again this is one of those things about looking in the other sources and, and actually it's something that is really at the forefront of research on queenship at the moment is the economic element of queenship it's something that's really not been looked at enough and it's only just now being seen as a key facet of queenship before there's been a lot of focus on patronage on maternity on you know political agency and influence and those things are all really important but another really massive aspect of what queens do is administration and their dower. So if you look at Joan's lands, they literally they literally stem the length and breadth of England. They go all the way from Yorkshire, they go into Wales, they go into the West Country. She's got a huge knot of them in the southern, south of England. She was the greatest landowner in the land, except for the crown. And so her writ ran everywhere. She had her officials everywhere, kind of reporting back to the queen and people owing money to the queen. I mean, she's incredibly powerful. Money is power. And she controls a massive amount of kind of economic resources. So this is, yeah, you're right. She has a whole office in Westminster that is just for her business, her doing business. And and that is a key aspect of what she does. And I think we haven't really thought of queens as businesswomen, as great kind of lords of the manor, but we are now. This is something that we're really starting to to change. And again, the financial um, information of Joan's reign is kind of what I've been drowning in. All the manorial roles, mm. the account books, the records. It's all about the money with Joan. And is that something which kind of contributes to the the, the king's reign? Like, is that a kind of a, a partnership thing? Or is that a completely separate thing where she is just like the major, not the king landowner? Or is it part of the king's rule that she's fulfilling? No, that's a really good question. So obviously these lands come from the crown holdings. So there are cases in which queens, you know, bought more manors and kind of augmented their holdings um, themselves as well. Um, But effectively dowers are granted to queens um, from the kind of pool of of crown lands and the queen holds them. Now she is effectively, um, you know, the lord of the manor, again, the same way that, you know, dukes and earls, et cetera, would be, you know, the great kind of landowners of the realm. 
ultimately there is an issue in that those lands came from the king and what the king can grant, the king can take away. And I'm sure we're going to get on to the, the eventually what happens to Joan and when her lands are, are kind of seized from her. So that is the downside in that you aren't a hereditary holder of those lands. You are holding them kind of of the king, if you like. But they did have complete control to administer them, to have the rights and revenues and resources. Um, to a certain extent, there's a kind of a level of justice, although they aren't completely sovereign. But in Portugal, um, some of the queens are, again, they rule cities where they have kind of power of life and death and justice over those um, that, that that are part of their, 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 I guess, realm, I suppose, their kind of mini realm. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it is a really important aspect of queenship. It is kind of rulership, administration. And does she have much of a, not to then dismiss that and go back to the traditional viewpoint, but does she have much of a political role or is it primarily economic? She, she does have a political role. So again, you know, one of the things that's really important to recognize with her, as we've touched on before, is that she's related to kind of all the protagonists in the Hundred Years' War. I mean, everybody is her relative in some way, shape or form, either her cousin or someone that her one of her children is married to, etc. She's related to everybody. Um, but this means that her loyalties are continually divided. And of course, as we know, in France at the, at the same time, we've got not only the tension between England and France or Brittany and France, but we've also got the, the Valois kind of imploding, if you like, with the whole kind of um, d debate between Orléans and, and Burgundy, if you like, which after um, her cousin, the Duke of, of Orléans, is assassinated, then you've got the kind of Orléans Armagnac faction against the Burgundians. And again, she's, you know, no matter what side she picks, she's going to be related to both of them. You're going to upset one if you go for the other. So kind of one of the other big kind of stories of Joan's life is she has forever got divided loyalties. Her family are always on two sides of a war, two sides of a dispute. She's always related to both sides and it makes it hard, really hard for her um, to, to kind of, um, yeah, to, 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 to be politically active without upsetting somebody. Let's put it that way. And that particularly becomes the case after um, Henry IV dies and is succeeded by uh Henry V, obviously that's when we start to get the Hundred Years' War resumed and Henry V uh, invades France in 1415. So what impact does um, Henry V's wars and Battle of Agincourt have on Joan and her standing in England? Because it seemed like she was quite role-restricted after Henry IV died, despite not actually being Henry V's mother. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's referred to as the king's beloved mother. And yet, obviously, she's not the king's mother. I mean, some of that is formulaic, but she's obviously not the king's mother. Now, as far as we can tell, that she did have a very good relationship with all of her stepchildren. Um, so, you know, her stepsons and, and her stepdaughters, even though they they left um, fairly early um, in Joan's tenure, if you like, to make their own marriages. But she seems to get on quite well with her stepchildren. And yes, in the beginning of Henry V's reign, he very much continues to support her, um, you know, defend her rights to her lands, the queen's gold, etc., um, and she acts for all intents and purposes as the queen. I mean, she continues to kind of fill that kind of female role of monarchy in the early years of Henry V's reign. But the Agincourt, the Battle of Agincourt, and that whole campaign is is a great illustration of this kind of divided loyalties. And that, you know, when when Henry V wins the Battle of Agincourt, Joan literally leads the service of thanksgiving. There's this procession to Westminster Abbey and they give thanks and the shrine of Edward the Confessor. But at the same time, she knows that her son, Arthur de Richemont, has been taken prisoner. Um, her stepson, her, her son-in-law, excuse me, um, Jean d'Alençon has been killed. Um, you know, she's got, she's got cousins, obviously, who've been involved in this as well. So her cousins have been destroyed, if you like, and yet her stepson has been victorious. So does she say hooray for Henry or did she say, oh, I'm really worried about Arthur and my poor daughter who is now a widow, you know. Um, so it, it, it is a it's a really, really difficult situation. Her loyalties become very suspect. There are repeated purges of her household in 1404, 1406, 1416 and 1426. And the 1416 one, uh, one of the things that specifically said is that basically that her household is a den of spies. The foreigners in her household are accused of basically spying for the enemy. So there's this real concern that the the French, the Navarrese, the Bretons in her household, she even has Italians in her household, are somehow working for the other side. And that there's an assumption that she must be retained this loyalty to her sons, to her daughters, to her um, her cousins in the Valois. And so therefore her, her loyalty to England is forever questioned. She's forever suspect. God, so, so she just can't win. 
So yeah. this is happening from both sides, presumably. She's just, so what a tightrope to have to walk. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, the very thing that makes her valuable is all those family ties. Mm. And yet that's also what means that she's forever, like I said, on the wrong side, no matter what she chooses, no matter what she does. And is there any evidence to suggest that she's in any way involved in spying or passing on information? Or is it just supposition that because she has these links, there's suspicion? I think a lot of it is some, there's no kind of smoking gun, if you like, that we can kind of link her. Um, but we know that she kept up, you know, um, a connection, obviously, with all of her family in Navarre, in Brittany, in France, um, you know, gift exchange, etc. But I think what we can see there is Joan is, I think she's always working for peace between the branches of her family and her engagement with, you know, sending copious gifts to her son, Jean V, and his um, his wife, another Jean de Valois. Uh, again, that that is part of diplomacy. He's tr- she's trying to encourage her stepson and her son to be on the same side. There are peace treaties in which she's specifically cited as being the impetus or encouraging, if you like, her family to come together. So I think she's always working to build bridges and to heal conflicts between them. But obviously, given the kind of volatile politics of the period, that's not always possible or successful. Despite all of this sort of suspicion being levelled at her, it still seemed that Henry V was treating her with lots of respect and treating her well, right up until the point at which she really really doesn't when she gets arrested for um well or suspicion of sorcery and plotting to murder him which it just seemed this really weird episode where nobody seemed to actually take it seriously and yet it's this incredibly dramatic thing that happened so what was all that What's going on yeah <laughs> Well, exactly. I mean, it is this uh, a dramatic kind of volte face, isn't it? Like one minute she's the king's beloved mother, and the next she's being arrested. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So so the question is kind of what's going on there. Now, obviously, one of the the big kind of elephant in the room there is this whole thing about witchcraft. And I think one of the things that um, the kind of journey that I had to go on is when I first started working on Joan, I kind of believed the whole witchcraft thing, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I found interesting about her. I'm like, there's a queen of England accused of witchcraft. Why don't we know more about this? What's going on with this? Um, the thing is that she wasn't actually accused of witchcraft. When you get down to it, when you look at the kind of parliamentary sources, she's accused of effectively encompassing the death of the king or, you know, kind of working against the king. She's effectively accused of treason although you know again that that's kind of played delicately it's only certain chroniclers of the brute and the chronicles of london throw in this whole necromancy and witchcraft kind of thing and not all the chronicles do that if you look at walsingham one of the great chroniclers of the period he just repeats this thing of saying you know she was accused of trying to harm the king um but this whole that it kind of suddenly gets spun off it's kind of like tabloid press all of a sudden it becomes whoa witchcraft you know? <laughs> so so it's a, it's a little bit um difficult to kind of unpick what's going on there. I think, again, going back to her father, um, Carlos El Malo, Charles the Bad, he was also accused of being a poisoner, of dabbling in witchcraft. He had a very kind of black legend about him, hence the nickname, the Bad. And so I think that she, in some ways, is kind of tarred with that brush that, you know, she's, again, she's been, you know, suspect of kind of divided loyalties or having a household full of spies, etc. Um, the witchcraft thing, or at least this perception on the part of these the chroniclers that wrote that that stuck that in their chronicle again it's almost like you know if the accusation says in the worst way possible let's make that leap from treason Mm. to witchcraft and you know clearly if she was really suspected of witchcraft um or even seriously of treason she wouldn't have been held comfortably at you know a, a variety of locations but for the most of the time at leeds castle um she wouldn't have you know she has a reduced household but she's still hosting guests like the archbishop of canterbury and humphrey of gloucester comes etc again if she was really this kind of vile criminal or witch you know that just wouldn't have been happening yeah. and she would have had to be tried so the major kind of questions has been well did she did henry v do it for money i mean he is in the middle of a, a very expensive war did he want her revenues that that may have been part of the equation um it may have also been her political influence again he may have been concerned that he couldn't completely trust her loyalties maybe he did Um, believe some of these petitions about spies in her household and he wants to kind of shut her down a bit you know put her in a more controlled location where he can kind of control everything that's going to her and coming from her so i think 
there is kind of both a political and a financial kind of aspect to it. But in terms of actual witchcraft or in terms of us having any evidence that she was involved in any kind of real attempt against the king, I think we have to kind of push those to one side. I, I don't think that's possible. And I don't think, it, it, the, again, the chroniclers don't give her a lot of time and they would if they really thought that she was a, a real enemy of the state. Yeah, I mean, that was so shocking when Graham told me that. It was just so it was I think you set it up on purpose to be so <laughs> like out of the blue. But it seems like that's how it came across at the time as yeah. well. It was just oh what? What was it, Graham? You said he said on his deathbed he was truly sorry or something. He renounced yes. it. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Henry V is full of remorse when he knows he's dying and he mm. he does completely backtrack and says, you know, set her free, let her have everything restored to her. But thinking about the bigger picture, not only is it really shocking, but poor Joan, I'd mentioned that Arthur, her son, Arthur de Richemont, had been taken prisoner at Agincourt. So he's in England. But on the other side of the channel, her sons, Jean V and her younger son, um, Richard, were taken prisoner by the Pontievre, the, the kind of bogeyman, the other branch of the Breton family at the same time. So there's this really great illustration of Joan, Arthur, Richard and Jean IV all in these kind of towers, kind of like Rapunzel up in these towers, you know, with, with the bars kind of saying, let me out. Because it was, I mean, these were terrible years for Joan. I mean, you know, not only was she she had no idea what was going to happen to her, how long she was going to be detained. But again, she was worried about Arthur and then she couldn't do anything to help Jean or Richard. And it was, a, you know, it's a really, really, her family was an abject crisis. I mean, they could have lost the Breton throne. She could have you know, ended up being executed, even if she was kind of tried, et cetera. I mean, you can imagine how much stress she must have been under during those years. Oh, yeah. Well, that was something we wanted about, whereas it seemed like no one was really taking it that seriously like you said the chroniclers don't make most of them don't seem to make that much of a fuss about it and obviously henry does remorsefully give everything back on her deathbed so would and people visit her like say the archbishop of canterbury the king's brother so would she have known that if it was all just for money that that's what was happening or would she have genuinely been sort of living day-to-day -day fearing that there was going to be a knock at the door and she'd be taken to the tower well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, we, we don't. It's hard to know what her state of mind was. I mean, obviously, she didn't have a choice but to kind of go along with it, effectively. Mm -hmm. And like I said, she was, you know, kept in honourable, you know, comfortable conditions, um, not necessarily completely queenly, and that her household was kind of scaled right back. But you know, she was, she was kept very comfortably. So yeah, but she would have been worried. I mean, it does show the vulnerability of queens. And you know, like I said earlier, what the king gives, the king can take away. Mm -hmm. No one is completely safe, not even the Queen of England. And there is no one to defend her i mean like i said her son the duke of Brittany, is also being held across the channel so he's not like he's going to ride to the rescue um you know the valois in terrible state with henry v marching all over france and taking over the place mm -hmm. so it's you know who's going to come i mean it's not it's not the charles uh, you know um carlos the third of navarre can you know come help out either because he too is is dealing with this really um difficult political balancing act um that that he's kind of trying to do and, and to keep the kings of france happy and and stay on side with everybody at the same time he's constantly kind of swinging one way or the other to try and not be uh, in disfavor so yeah it's 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 a really tough situation she knows there's no one riding to the rescue she's got to sit it out and hope for the best and then i guess the best does come in the sense that obviously henry v dies not too long um afterwards and then does that vault fast and then she's sort of given all her lands and status and uh money back um, and one thing I read in terms of the potential financial motivation for Henry V was the fact that after the Treaty of Troyes, he is marries uh, Catherine of Valois, and he has to provide again that big uh, dowry for her, and that he can't afford to pay Joan what she's getting, so he basically needs to give it to Catherine. Um, do we? Do, do the two of them have any interaction with each other, Catherine of Valois and Joan of Navarre? Do they link at all, or are they just living completely separate existences? Well, there's a couple of things to do. backing up to the dowry, just or the dower rather, just for I'm a minute. Sorry, that's a, no, that's because I wanted to kind of touch on that. So that's an interesting one. So you're right. He, she is granted obviously that same kind of level of of dower that Joan had. The problem is when Henry V releases Joan, Joan gets everything she had back. 
So Joan still has all the Queen's lands, quote unquote. She's got this big parcel. So where do they come up? You know, Catherine de Valois petitions Parliament kind of right after Henry V's death saying, um, what about me? I've been promised all this dower too. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they have to dower her from the Duchy of Lancaster lands because the crown lands that normally traditionally go to the Queens of England, Joan is holding them again because Henry V gave them back to her. So there is a bit of a, they're kind of, I mean, you know, whether that led to a personal dispute between the queens, you know, whether Catherine resented Joan for holding all the traditional queen's lands that she may have felt should have been hers. We don't know. It is really interesting. Obviously, they're cousins. And obviously, Catherine's sister is um, Joan's a daughter-in-law as well. So there's that. Um, so there's, yeah, they're, they're really all kind of tightly related. So the question about what kind of personal relationship they have is really difficult. And that's something that I really wanted to find some kind of direct connection between them or letters or any kind of correspondence. There's nothing that we can show definitively to say, oh, yes, she used to come visit Joan all the time. We know Humphrey did, for example, her stepson Humphrey of Gloucester visits Joan frequently, both when she's imprisoned and later on in her residences. His second wife, Eleanor Cobham, also is a frequent guest of Joan and Joan gifts her um, all sorts of things, including the kind of fittings of her chapel later on. Um, so we know that there's an interaction there on a personal level. But with Catherine of Valois, there's nothing like that that we can say, oh, yes, Catherine used to hang out with Joan all the time or, you know, other than kind of customary exchanges. There, there doesn't seem to have been a terribly close relationship. So is that because there, there's two dowager queens and they both kind of want to be the dowager queen or the kind of supremo at court? I think Joan steps aside, certainly for Catherine in that respect. Um, Joan is less frequently at court um, in Henry VI reign, whether some of that is kind of um, being tarnished by this kind of accusation of treason or witchcraft, etc. Um, whether it's just because she's had enough and she's happy to not be at court so much at that point, hard to say. But there may have been some um, rivalry between them for for kind of position. And even I think I read about Henry VI sort of sending um, Joan a gift as his sort of honorary step grandmother. So again, someone presumably must have told him he needed to do that. Maybe it wasn't Catherine, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we do see Joan continuing to receive kind of the customary New Year's gifts and that kind of thing. I mean, she does, she is still acknowledged, um, you know, as the, you know, uh, the step grandmother of the king. I know it's kind of a, a strange position to be in, um, but she is, her queenly status is still recognised, if you like, even though she is even farther removed from the throne now. So how would you sort of assess Joan as a queen, or I suppose as a person overall, but say, because obviously as part of our podcast, we review and we score them we found joan quite an odd one to score because she felt like she'd got a lot of personal agency and a really interesting story but it sort of didn't always seem to be kind of direct queenly mm. power as such it seemed a lot of stuff that she was doing of herself almost for herself so how would you assess her yeah okay well that's that's a really good question i mean as i mentioned before one of the things that really comes out with joan is her feistiness and that she does fight you know through the entirety of her life and certainly when she is her lands are restored to her after the death of, of henry v she fights vociferously to get back everything that she can sending her lawyers here there and everything to make sure that everyone starts paying her again um you know exploiting all of the rights and and revenues that she has um that she has as part of her dower she fights her son tooth and nail to retain her lands in Brittany when he tries to take those from her as well. So she's she is really kind of tough as nails and she has a real sense of her own position and prerogatives and she definitely is not the kind of person to kind of sit in the background and you know let people walk all over her like a doormat. So I think that's one thing that really comes across with her. And again if we see queenship, if we see that economic aspect of queenship as being at the core of what it is to be queen as a key part of the queen's office, mm. she exercises that very intensely. You know, so she's really, really um, deeply enmeshed in that aspect of queenship. But we also see, again, her political engagement as a peacemaker, as an intercessor, her influence, um, even if she doesn't successfully influence um, the, the king when she is kind of pro-Burgundian um, at the end of Henry the, the Fourth's reign. Um, she agrees with Henry V or Prince Hal at that point. Um, but, you know, that's not the direction necessarily that Henry IV chooses to go. But she is not afraid to make her opinions known. She's not afraid to step in. She 
she does work for peace. We see that acknowledged again in the documentation. We see her ongoing engagement with gift exchange and keeping up lines of diplomacy and communication with her relatives throughout her life, you know, in Brittany, in Navarre, in France, etc. So she's someone that's very aware of, of politics and how the different ways in which it can be done, the subtle ways, the obvious ways that, you know, the, the peace and diplomacy is, is, is kind of a key part of what she's doing as well. She also creates amazing networks. She kind of co-ops the kind of most powerful men into the realm into her networks of her household, the officials on her lands, giving them key power, prerogative position. So she is She's a, a very keen political operator. And again, it might be harder to see that because she's not the one on the throne kind of making the decisions or leading the armies, but she's very much engaged with politics at every level. And again, through the entirety of her life, you know, she's, she's, she cultivates all the right people. Um, and, and she also is not afraid to kind of, you know, work the church lines and that kind of thing, even in the beginning of her, um, uh, her negotiations with Henry, when she's, she and he are on the other side of the papal schism as well. So kind of working the anti-Pope and, and all that kind of thing to kind of get what she wants in terms of dispensations. So, She's a, yeah, she's definitely a political operator. She was definitely feisty. She was very aware of her position um, and, and very keen to retain it as well. I just think there needs to be a book written about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the title of your book, Ellie, again? It's Joan of Navarre, Infanta, Duchess, Queen, Witch, question mark. So the, oh, the witch nice. thing, oh, yeah. witch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can see how I feel about it now. Obviously, that we've had this discussion. But uh, but again, that, that's really important to her. And throughout her life, even her tomb at Canterbury Cathedral really expresses all of those identities. You know, the Navarrese crests are there. The Breton ermines are there. You know, again, that, that role as queen being side by side with her husband, you know, in, in their final resting place. She's very keen to communicate all of those identities and very much projects them throughout her life. Outside of um, Joan of Navarre, you um, said at the start, you also do a lot of work in sort of royal studies and um, royal studies network and queenship more generally. Could you tell us a bit more about the royal studies network? And Yeah, so um, when I was finishing my PhD, we threw a conference called the Kings and Queens Conference, and I worked with my uh, colleague, Sean McGlynn, um, who you might be familiar with. He works on medieval kings, Philip Augustus, King John, etc., more the kind of military aspects of medieval kingship. And we decided to kind of get our kings and queens together. We thought it was going to be a little conference and it was, we got over a hundred papers. Um, and so it just made us think, oh my gosh, there's all these people working on royal studies, working on different aspects of monarchical history, um, but there's not really a home or a venue for them. And out of that grew the Kings and Queens conference series, out of that grew the Royal Studies Network. So what that is, is it's not a um, society in the sense of having to pay dues and have presidents and secretaries, etc. It is literally a network. It's a means of connecting people who from different disciplines all work on monarchical studies, basically in some way, shape or form. So art historians, historians, architectural historians, archaeologists, political scientists, economists, etc., who are all working on this and starting those conversations and collaborations. And we've got well over 600 people around the world who are part right. of this network. Um, and that's uh, spawned the, um, the, we've got digital seminar series. We've got, as I mentioned, a, a podcast coming, but also the Royal Studies Journal, which is an open access um, peer-reviewed academic publication, which again provides a, a publication form um, for Royal Studies. And then there's been various book series, um, Again, I edit uh, the Gender and Power in Pre-Modern World book series with ARC Humanities Press and also the Lives of Royal Women series at Routledge, which is um, the series in which the Joan of Navarre biography will be published in. So uh, again, it just it, it was something really amazing to me. I didn't really realize how many people work in royal studies um, mm -hmm. until we kind of opened that door. And it's a fantastic, thriving community, fantastic scholars, um, some really exciting research. And it's a field that's just continuing to kind of grow and develop. And what's the podcast going to be, or is it still sort of early stages of? It's going to it's going to be quite varied. So one of the things we again we just want to give another platform to kind of emerging research in in, in moral studies. So it'll be we'll have different themes. Um, so for example, obviously our our next uh, next month we're going to be doing jubilees because it's uh, the Queen's jubilee next month. Um, we might have another month where we're looking at palaces or we're looking at a particular. Um, we've got a feature coming up with a book that's just coming out where we're having different contributors to that book talk about their you know contributions to it and the idea of memorializing monarchs. So. Very very varied in terms of theme, but just really responding to, you know, different research that's coming out in the field and just trying to highlight that, really. Our listeners here are exactly your demographic. I think you've got <laughs> quite a few who will be 
tuning into that. Sounds brilliant. Oh, thank you. Now, well, you guys, like you said, you have a thriving podcast here. So uh, so we promise we're not stepping on your toes, but hopefully something, like you said, <laughs> our listeners will be able to listen to your podcast and vice Yeah. And uh, lastly, just wanted to ask about um, queenship studies generally, because I think definitely thinking back to like we started doing this in uh, the podcast in 2010, and it feels like since that time, there's been a real explosion in certainly in popular, I think in academic literature as well about queenship, and particularly obviously for queens of England, but for Europe and um, across the world. Is it a particularly vibrant period at the moment, would you say, for queenship studies? Or has it actually always been there? It's just not necessarily been in Waterstones. <laughs> no, it, no, great, great question. Yeah, it is a really thriving field. Um, it has been, obviously, it's one of those things that kind of grew out of the long-term kind of fascination with the lives of queens, Agnes Strickland's lives of queens of England, all the kind of queenly prosopographies of the pre-modern era. But it kind of became an academic discipline kind of, well, we can debate kind of when it started, but certainly from the 80s onward, it's, it's really been picking up pace and momentum and really starting to look not just at the lives of royal women, but the office of queen and how it's exercised. And one of the things that's really exciting at the moment is that we're starting to really expand that conversation to bring in the economic element, which I mentioned earlier, but also mm. thinking about it globally. And that's something I've been really kind of pushing is that actually we spend a lot of time looking at it in a European context, in a medieval and early modern European context, which is Christian and monogamous. And it has a particular framework for how monarchy works. But if you look at monarchy across space and time, we're the anomalies. We're like the odd ones out. So we're we're studying the anomaly really intently, which is great. We've you know so much amazing research and so much amazing history. But there, it looks really different when you pull it out and you look at polygamous monarchical frameworks, for example. What that does to the role of royal women is it really kind of changes the dynamic. They're still incredibly important at the center of monarchy, but it works in a different way. So that's one thing I've been really encouraging people to do is kind of pull the lens out and look at it a little bit differently. And by placing these the the, the groups that we've been studying quite intently in a, in a wider context, we can appreciate it and understand it better and differently. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for um, chatting to us about uh, Joan and um, about Queenship. We've got one more uh, hard question for you. We're doing this series on obviously all the Queen consorts and Prince consorts of England. Do you have a prediction for who you think could be our ultimate series champion oh that is a tough one so I, I'll, I'll confess i'm actually on the editorial board of uh we're doing the english consorts collection which again has all the consorts yeah, yeah. male and female of england and that is something that we could all kind of debate like which one do we like the best or is the kind of ultimate consort that is I don't know. Do you go? Do you go for like long serving, like again, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip? Um, do you go for most impactful? Do you go for the feisty ones, like the she wolves, Isabella of France or Margaret of Anjou? I I do not know how I would possibly. Make that decision. <laughs> I, question, yeah, I was going to say I, I I certainly I know a lot of people would go for Anne Boleyn. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, but I I certainly I would say. Although I couldn't pick definitively, I would like to put a bit in for Joan is one of the ones that, you know, again, deserves uh, to be higher ranked in that would probably by a lot of people be kind of right down the bottom of the ranking of those that group, but hopefully, um, will be moving up the scale and much more, much more visible in terms of the top flight of those consorts. <laughs> <laughs> So um, how can people, if people want to either get in touch with the authors or follow you on social media, where, where can people find you on the internet? So my uh, Twitter handle is at MonarchyConf, so C-O-N-F. And of course, I put that um, I, I put that handle together when I was first doing the Kings and Queens Conference. So that's kind of where that's come from, but I've stuck with it. Um, obviously, you can find um, my, my page at the University of Winchester or my academia.edu page. Um, and also, again, check out the Lives of Royal Women series and the Gender and, Modern, uh, Gender and Power and the Pre-Modern world series such a tongue twister and the royal studies network page and you can kind of see what we're what we're up to and the latest kind of kings and queens conference we're going to be back in nantes this year which i'm super excited about because mm -hmm. that's somewhere that joan lived in and mm -hmm. um, we're actually going to be launching um, the book and some other um uh, books in the series that have just come out on anne of bohemia and also the early mm -hmm. english queens and the empress maria of austria as well so um lots of kind of fun stuff happening this summer i mean you've got to say though it is uh, it is unfortunate that you didn't manage to get the book out last year before we did the episode that, that would <laughs> have been much that. more helpful <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> oh, sorry if we go. well we'll really look forward to reading the book when it comes out this summer um but yeah so thank you so much for joining us it's been brilliant thank you well thanks for the invitation and i hope you enjoy the book when it comes out bye bye, bye. 
So that was Dr. Ellie Woodacre and a return to Joan of Navarre. Uh, let us know what you thought uh, about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join Privy Council and get lots of bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor to sign up. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. All right, super, let's hear them. Chris Kyle, Kyle Much, Daniel John, Elizabeth Levy-Henderson, Carissa Strickland, Stephanie Cloutier, Amanda Freitag, Colleen Cunningham, Lindsay Walden, Lauren Hutchinson, Maya Sapirka, Maggie B, Morgan Silvers, Ali Mack, Nicholas Hanna, Claire Johnson, Michelle Gibson, Amy Snorder, Nora Zeliza, Heather Thorvald, Tara McKelleny, Ambry South, Mallory Hart, Emily Willingham, and also a birthday gift of a Privy Councillor membership to the Lady Sabrina from the Lady Amber with love. So happy birthday, Lady Sabrina. Happy birthday, Lady Sabrina. Uh, so that's all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview. Uh, as we said, that you can follow Dr. Ellie Woodacre on Twitter, where she is at MonarchyConf, uh, and also the Royal Studies Network, which is at Royal Studies. Uh, and be sure to look out for her biography on Joan of Navarre when that comes out later this year. Um, at Royal Studies. I mean, I know I said it at the bit end there, but I haven't really cottoned on. That's like Uber Consort Rex Factor channel. It is. Uh, anyway, our next episode will be back uh, to the consult series with Margaret uh, of Anjou. So we shall see you for Margaret of Anjou next time. Uh, the old she-wolf of Bournemouth. <laughs> or oh, worse to that effect. Cheerio. <laughs>